You are listening to Healing Arts with Dr. Shelley Care. Visit me online at www.pastlifelady.com. Connect with me on YouTube at Past Life Lady or on my Facebook fan page at Past Life Lady. The Healing Arts Program is not intended as a substitute for consultation with a licensed medical or mental health professional. The listener should regularly consult a physician or mental health professional in matters relating to his or her health, and particularly with respect to any symptoms that may require diagnosis or medical attention. This program provides content related to educational, medical, and psychological topics. As such, listening to the program implies your acceptance of this disclaimer. guess what? I've got a new book coming out. It's called The Goddess Discovered, Exploring the Divine Feminine Around the World. And it is coming out on December 8th from Llewellyn Worldwide. This book has over 500 deities in it. Part one of the book will take you into the ancient world where you will learn about ancient religions that you may have practiced during your past lives and you'll explore goddesses from the ancient Celts, the Norse, the Egyptians, the Greeks and Romans, and more. And then in part two, we will explore living religions, current modern religions, and the deities worshipped by people during our own modern times. In part three, you'll have a chance to take some past life regressions and even genealogical regressions to connect with the places where your ancestors may have worshipped these deities in the past. Pre-order The Goddess Discovered and you'll receive a free gift, a guided journey from me through my healing arts platform. I hope that this one will be a book that you will have on your shelf for years to come. And I cannot thank you enough for your support of this book. I'll have lots of events coming up. But meanwhile, you can pre-order The Goddess Discovered. And I thank you so much for your support. Namaste. Welcome to Healing Arts. I'm your host, Dr. Shelley Care. Hey, dear one. I hope you're having a wonderful week. So this is a very special episode today with my beloved, lifelong friend, Dr. Raymond Moody. If you have read any of my books or you have listened to this show for any amount of time, I think everybody is pretty clear, Uh, but I'm going to remind you anyway of just exactly how much Dr. Moody means to me. I read his book when I was a kid. It fell off the shelf in the library and hit me in the foot. And it changed my life. And to think that I've had this friendship with him for so long is just something that I am so grateful for. There are hardly any words to express it. So Raymond and I are back again here. He's got this new book. We talked to his co-author, Paul Perry, last week, which is super interesting. This one's called 
proof of life after life. And what I love about it is that all of the thinking and all of the ideas that Raymond's come up with over the years are really put together now in a really cohesive manner so that you can just really see a lot of his philosophical thinking that he's had over the course of many years. And it does give proof of life after life. It suggests that guess what? We're going on from here. Um, so this was an amazing discussion. We had a really long conversation before we recorded the episode, which was amazing. I love seeing Raymond. I had not seen him in a long time. I talked to him last year on the phone, but I don't get to see him often enough. So uh, let's settle in. And I think you're really going to enjoy my episode with one of my favorite people on earth, Dr. Raymond Moody. Let's check it out. dear friends. Welcome to another episode of Healing Arts. So I am absolutely thrilled beyond belief to welcome my dear friend, Dr. Raymond Moody back to the Healing Arts podcast. Raymond has an amazing book. This is part two of our interview because I talked to his co-author, Paul Perry, and now Raymond is going to discuss with me their brand new book that I was one of the first to get a chance to read it. I love it. It is called Proof of Life After Life. Seven Reasons to Believe in the Afterlife. Raymond, welcome to Healing Arts. It's great to see you. It's so great to see you, Shelley. It really is. And I'm saying that being past the age of politeness. <laughs> I mean, you know, we've been friends for a long time and you're just so, you know, just completely honest and straight. It's just, you're great. So it's so good to be with you. Raymond, you are one of my favorite people alive, and I just love that you are still bringing us books. Thank you so much. I love the idea that you're giving us proof of the afterlife. So how do you think the word proof really affects the skeptical public when we're talking about these kinds of matters? Well, one reason I like the, the the book is, the title of the book is that proof is a controversial um, word. And um, I myself, you know, I was a professor of logic. So I think in terms of logical and mathematical proof. And then at the other extreme is the, um, the tabloid uh, headline, you know, proof of Bigfoot, you know, or whatever where it's the whole object is sensational. So we have a huge spectrum of meanings here. And also the fact that not everybody wants a proof of life after death. You know, some people have had a near-death experience, right? They don't need a proof. I mean, what is this? But there are, from my experience, many people out there who do look some, looking for some kind of proof or definitive information on the afterlife. And, uh, what I would say is in, in terms of that mid-level of proof, which is something like that, we know enough now so that it is a rational position to anticipate that there is an afterlife. And I say that because in terms of my process, I am a, an actual skeptic, uh, Shelley, as you know, but in the, see, I, Greek philosophy is my thing. I, you know, I had a PhD in philosophy before I went to uh, medical school, and, and I, um, you know, it's just very dear to my heart. I read 
constantly books on Greek philosophy. And so the reason why these so-called skeptics uh, that may are so irritating to me has nothing to do with uh, near-death experiences, but with the fact that I love teaching Greek philosophy. And so when I get to you know the skeptics, which are a fascinating group of people, I have to undo the damage that done to my students' minds by these people who say, oh, I'm a skeptic about these near-death experiences. I think it's just the chemistry of the brain. <laughs> well, folks, whenever you see anybody make that assertion, I can guarantee you that person is an ignoramus <laughs> to the degree that they have no idea what they're talking about. Let me explain what is what skeptic movement is. The skeptical movement was a um, spiritual practice after the development of logic by Aristotle. And what they thought was, well, what if we apply this, this scheme of logic that Aristotle has brought con con concocted? We apply it very vigorously. And you, you can think of Aristotelian logic as a mechanism for generating conclusions from premises, right? And so um, the skeptics ask, well, what if we really bear down on the method of really apply it closely, but in the end, we refrain from drawing a conclusion. We do the whole process, but then we refrain from conclusion. And they did this as a spiritual practice because they found two things. Number one, if you practice it assiduously, which is, you know, it's, if you have a certain temperament, it's, it's kind of easy to do, but you reach this wonderful state, which they call, they say something like calm, and I have experienced that. If just don't, what is the rush on drawing conclusions? Okay. And secondly, if everybody else is rushing to get to the conclusion in this direction, but your strategy is to not draw a conclusion, then you see in the side view, you see the peripheral matters that everybody else is missing because they get to the conclusion. Now, knowing that, um, just read back what that statement you is so familiar with these know-nothings, as I think of them. Um, I'm a skeptic about these near-death experiences. I think it's just the chemistry of the brain. Well, oxygen deprivation, whatever. And so what they are saying, if you unpack it, is, well, I'm a person who doesn't draw conclusions, and my conclusion is such and such. Right, which is a self-contradiction. So they're ignoramuses. So what we need is a real grappling with this big question um, that's outside of that framework of either people who just sort of fall over and say, yes, it must be true, or, or it's true, or the people who say, nah, this adolescent mentality as it is with so-called skeptics, it's a, a very adolescent organs. And I say that not to criticize or condemn. I, I'm just making a developmental statement, sort of, because I myself am more as at the infantile stage, as you would imagine. But uh, so I'm not, you know, criticizing in a way they're ahead of me. <laughs> but, um, but what I've, let me explain my route with these near death experiences, being a, not only a skeptic by nature almost, I mean, I fell in with the skeptics when I was a, in, a student of philosophy uh, very quickly because it was my temperament anyway. And um, so I've 
been fighting this all the way. I mean, fighting it in the sense of just trying to think of the reasons why not. That's what I do with anything, because if, if, if you fall into the trap of having something you think you want out there, and then trying to bridge, a, build a flimsy bridge to it with some sort of mock reasons, that you're always miserable, right? But if you really assiduously practice, you know, thinking of the objections to everything, uh, then um, it's more fun <laughs> because you're, it's, it's not that, you know, constant feeling of deceiving yourself. It's never comfortable because at some level, somebody's doing that knows. And so I'm just, you know, the fun of inquiry to me is, is conducting it rigorously. And just where I have reached with that, Shelley, is knowing full well as a professor of logic, why that with the current system of logic put in place by the Greeks, I know full well why in that system you cannot draw a logical conclusion that there is a life after death, which doesn't mean that there isn't right? It just means that it's beyond the capacities of the logic that we absorb as we're growing up. And I want to amend that statement by saying that there is a way around it. I mean, I, you know, it's if you're really interested in logic and thinking things out, then, then there is a way to, to think about thinking in a whole new way that opens up a whole new perspective on the afterlife. But that aside, which is not something a lot of people are going to be interested in, right? But where I am, because that part of it is satisfied for me, because as a logician, I understand that, that um, the fact that you cannot draw a logical inference that there's a life after death doesn't mean that there isn't one, okay? But where I have reached practicing that method throughout my life of throwing up objections to everything, it drives my friends nuts. <laughs> but, you know, it's fun. But where I've reached, Shelley, is I give up. I mean, uh, you know, it's, I just don't know what to say. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, not as a logical good, but I gather that there is life after death. And I, you know, to my astonishment, I, I was not religious as a kid and I'm still not religious. I, my dad was kind of hostile to religion, I think probably because of bad experiences. I was a medic in World War II. And um, so I just grew up free of all that stuff. And so I don't have any template for the idea of an afterlife. To me, it's still very counterintuitive. But where I've given my process of examining this, I just got to the point I, I give up. I can't think my way out of, see, I can't think my way out of that, that, that apparently there's an afterlife. And a lot of factors brought it around to me. One is I knew for a while, even as a medical student, that that so-called thing, oxygen deprivation to the brain was hooey. <laughs> because one of my own medical school professors, a wonderful professor of psychiatry, is this wonderful woman, told me during my first year of medical school about her own experience in resuscitating her mother, uh, during wh which the 
the psychiatrist herself was out of her body and looking at the scene and seeing the light also. And I've heard that same story from many others who were there present at the bedside of somebody else who was dying, who had these same things, see? So if the bystanders who are not ill or injured are having the same experience as the person who, you know, is dying and brought back, then, you know, it's obviously not oxygen deprivation to the brain. But that is a, a very, you know, appealing dilemma to people. I mean, they love to think in those terms that is it the oxygen deprivation to the brain or is it life after death? Because it's that eliminates some of the fear that we would otherwise, many people would otherwise have in facing this. I mean, many people are terrified even of the idea of death or thinking about it or talking about it. So, you know, the, the standard debate, which was framed originally by Plato and his rough contemporary, a little earlier, Democritus, the atomist, um, Democritus analyzing these things said, well, it's, you know, it's the residual biological activity in the body even after the, the um, body appears dead. And he, you know, he had figured out that there are atoms. So this is invisible, he said, but it's biological. There's no such thing as a moment of death, he said. It's a process. Meanwhile, just a few years later, Plato, you know, talking about these same cases, said, well, you know, he thought this is an indicator of an afterlife. And see, that same debate goes back, see, 2,300 years. It's nothing new. And it's, it's very comforting to people who are afraid of saying, I don't know which is a lot of us, to me, it's, I, I don't know, I don't know, it's an easy thing for me to say, but I'm just astonished how many people are just terrified of saying, I don't know, and, and so, you know, it keep that, that is enough to keep the standard way of arguing about it in place, but if, you know, like I said, the bystanders are not ill or injured, they have the same experience, and, you know, they're not having oxygen deprivation to the brain, so, that goes nowhere. And where I've come to it, Shelley, is I, I for, for instance, I am a fanatical walker, as you may remember. I just, it's, it's not a virtue, it's a sheer addiction. I mean, I have to do it every morning. And, and, and this has been, you know, decades. And so, you can imagine how the idea of hurting my foot. Oh my God. I, mean, I just, the horrible thing even to say or to think about right now. I have a friend, Anthony Chikoria, who's a PhD in physiology and an MD, an orthopedic surgeon, and a professor of orthopedic surgery. And I think it's NYU, I'm not sure, upstate New York. And in 1994, um, Anthony got hit in the head by lightning and, uh, and got out of his body. He was at a family reunion. He was, saw what all of his relatives were doing. And, you know, they didn't know he was apparently dead. And so, you know, he got out of this. And he had this amazing experience. As they often say, more real than real. He's not like a dream, but opposite of a dream. Then he had never had any interest in the piano, but suddenly developed this interest in the piano. And he uh, 
started dreaming he was on a concert stage playing a piece on the piano. And he learned how to transcribe music too. And started toying around with the piano and taking lips. And now, in addition to being an orthopedic surgeon, he's a concert pianist. Okay, well, and you could go on with Dr. Eben Alexander, one of my best friends. You know, a uh, uh, you know a professor of neurosurgery at Harvard, and um, you know his near-death experience. It, and um, Again, this thing, more real than real, they say. Or I could list a dozen other physicians. That, Dr. Um, Jeff O'Driscoll, if you know about this case, and I, it's, it's just an amazing thing, an ER doctor. Um, while the patient uh, on the operating room table was being, you know, hopefully resuscitated as he was after a car crash in which his leg was smashed off. Mm. Um, Jeff O'Driscoll in the, seeing this patients surrounded by all the tubes and wires also saw the patient's dead wife who had been killed in the accident <laughs> and had a conversation with her right there in the ER. And so, you know, and all these people I'm talking about, I asked myself, if heaven forbid something were happening to me, when I go to them and consult them, do I trust their medical judgment? Absolutely, yes. All right, so then it's sort of a cognitive dissonance when they all also say that this experience they have had that I have not had was not just not a dream, but actually more real than ordinary waking reality, like hyper. So, and, and, and that is one of the reasons, see, I just give up. I can't think my way out of that consistently. So, I mean, I give up, I give up. So, and, and I think that um, people who are interested in this question and want some sort of rational basis, I can think that I, as Paul and I point out in this book, you know, the, the new book, the, the proof of life after life, the, the new one, um, I think that, what I, we put out together, out, out together there is something that people can read through and realize that it is a rational thing to anticipate that there is life after death. I do. Yeah, you bring up so many good points. I really like the idea of being a skeptic and not saying it's this or that, because as you yeah. have done, it brings you um, more opportunities to, I think, research and come up with different ideas to solve problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, it's, it's like I said, my hostility to these morons is not anything to do with your death experiences. It's the, my fact that I, when I teach Greek philosophy, which I love to do, that it has a lot of unwinding to do with all these, because these people are so obnoxious number one and like it's very adolescent mentality kind of nah, 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 attitude. and it, I mean it doesn't strike me the ones I've known well I don't think of them as seekers of the truth I think of them as people with an attitude many of them are entertainers by the way and uh, yeah. so you know you can't expect them to be fine-tuned on Greek philosophy but nonetheless it's it's that was the fate of common fate of all those four Hellenistic philosophers after the classical era, the Stoics, the Cynics, the 
uh, skeptics and the Epicureans, and they all kind of interacted. The skeptics actually had an influence on them. The Epicureans, actually. And also, you might be interested to know that Pyrrho, the founder of, um, of the skeptical movement, went to uh, India with Alexander the Great. And there he interacted with the early Buddhists. And actually, the earliest writings about the, uh, the Buddhists do not come from the inside India. They come from the Greek tradition. And Pyrrho went and visited. And when he came back, he practiced yoga, and he would go on peregrinations like the Buddha did, just wandering around. You know, wow. So, I mean, it's a great story, and it's too bad that these know-nothings, essentially, have taken over this label with this whole society of just sort of malcontents and, you know, kind of uninformed people who have a point of view. There's a lot going on out here, that's for sure. <laughs> So I like, you know, you bring up a lot of different phenomenon in the book. And one of the ones um, I spoke with Paul about this, about the time it was back in the early 2000s, right after you and I first met, that I got to come out when you lived in Alabama and go yeah. to your Psychomantion yeah. certification mm -hmm. training, which was amazing. And mm -hmm. I have so many people asking me about that. And I know that I was really pleased. We talked about the book Reunions that you and Paul did, which I love. It's one of my favorites of yours. And that you put that, the Psychomantion in this book as well as one yeah. of the pieces, one of these seven yeah. possible pieces. So tell us yeah. about the, the Psychomantion and because of course that's with the Greeks as well. And, and right. what See, is as, as you know, Shelley knows with all my other friends that actually I'm kind of boring because to me, everything goes back to the Greeks and what the, uh, the whole Greek philosophy, <laughs> uh, the, Greek, um, the Greek philosophy or the whole Western system of reason, when you ask how it came about, well, you quickly get to these institutions called oracles of the dead. And the early philosophers, like, uh, you know, the ones we know about, Socrates and Plato, if somebody had asked them, if somebody in their age had been asked, what is a philosopher? The typical attitude was a philosopher is a person who probes into things up in the sky, which is magical flight um, or out of body, as we would or probes into things under the earth, which was code word for evocation of the deceased at these oracles of the dead, where were these subterranean institutions where they had techniques, several te techniques, where they could bring you into a visionary state during which you would have a visionary reunion with departed loved ones. And I had read about this in college uh, in my first year of college and reading Herodotus. And I remember distinctly the passage. And I was thinking in my 18 year old omniscience, I was thinking, well, Herodotus must have had a bad day that day. Because I knew that couldn't be that you there's a place you could go to call up your dead relatives. But, you know, as I matured, you, that is, is a reality. And there were several of them. And um, at the most famous one, which is in the Odyssey, but is also mentioned in Herodotus. There's a lot of historical sources to it. But uh, apparently what they were doing there, they were using mirror gaze, which is a, a large cauldron, which they could polish on the inside and then fill with 
water and probably a layer of olive oil on the top of it to give that see-through occurrence, like you're gazing into infinity. And so when I read the archeological report that had been done in about 1985 or six, I saw that detail about the corner and I figured out that must've been what they were doing. The archeologists were, you know, they didn't quite make sense of it, but I thought that's, and it still exists today in the Middle East. They do this silver bow polish with the olive oil and the candle. And so, um, so I, you know, when I made that realization, I had to set it up and try it out. And so I did, and I worked initially with my, uh, my graduate students and my medical and psychological colleagues and with a sociology professor friend of mine. They were just doing it out of curiosity, but to my astonishment, we found it is fairly simple and easy actually to set up a situation in which you can seem to see and communicate with your deceased loved ones. And it's, um, and it's such a startling claim, but it's easy to verify. And, um, you know, why, the, why this doesn't get more attention, I don't know. Maybe it was suppressed by the churches, you can imagine, in the 300s or so on. But it, it's been a part of Western civilization all along. You, some, sometimes people know about it, sometimes they don't. It just 150 years ago was common knowledge in America and Britain. But that was because there was no radio or no TV. So people sat around and did things like gaze into mirrors and visit grandma. I mean, it's just, it seems so quaint now, but it, I mean, it's just, it's, it, if anybody saw that movie, uh, Cold Mountain, you know, with the young woman gazing into the well and seeing the mirror, and it's just part and part of being a human being. And so what I can say is, yeah, absolutely, you, you can create a situation and, and you don't have to be a believer. I mean, the folks I was doing this for, we were just curious. And, and the most startling thing that came out of this to me, Shelley, was, you see, these were doctors and graduate students, counselors with all psychological knowledge. I was just assuming that any of them who saw something would say, oh yeah, I saw a vision in the mirror, it looked like my grandma, but was it real or was, I don't know. So, but that was not what happened. These very sophisticated people said, I saw my mother. And, um, and so it, it has a sense of reality. It's not like a dream at all. And, uh, so, and I think it's a really startling information that a, a method that goes back to remote antiquity and is, is part of the folk culture of America until just uh, 150 years ago, yeah. And, and, and given the fact that so many people who, that I'm counseling for grief, for example, say, oh, if I only had five more minutes, you think that you're, you say, oh, well, it's quite possible to create that. When it, and it's, uh, yeah. And that it is startling information to me that even very sophisticated people who come out of that don't say, you know, it was like a dream. They say, no, this was very definitively like they interpret it as a real event. They do. Absolutely. And it does, even a, a study years afterwards showed that uh, even people who had psychomantion experiences um, as long as five years earlier uh, looked back on it as a real event. It was a, you know, a changing point for them and their grief. 
Yeah, because what you, you talked about this in reunions and again in this book, this psychomantion for friends mm -hmm. out there, basically Raymond came up with this idea. It was incredible that, that you, the person at home, you could read his materials and you could then create your own version of your own yeah. Greek Oracle of the Dead. So when I took the yeah. class, we learned how to construct this and we were sitting in this darkened room with using mirrors and some people will actually see their loved one emerge from the mirror. And That's as you true. just said, have like a very real and healing experience for their That's grief true. that will resolve that very deeply in a way that a lot of other things can't. I mean, it's incredible. That's right. That's right. And it's now in one of the standard grief therapy handbooks, an article written by Arthur Hastings, who's now deceased. Maybe we should try to get in touch with Arthur. You know, I have thought about that. I wonder That'd how he's great. doing. <laughs> yeah. Right. Now, I have to ask this. I've never, I don't think I've ever actually asked you this before, but when you think, when I think of you, and the level and depth of your knowledge and complete understanding of the way the Greeks were, how they, I mean, to, to be able to take an ancient practice and bring it into modern times, I have to ask myself, do you feel that you lived a past life during these times of like Plato and Socrates and them? Have you ever considered that? I don't or are you know. too skeptical to draw a conclusion? Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. Um, whether I was in Greece or not, uh, but I know how I have that great love for it. I mean, it's, uh, I just constantly read it since the age of 18. I've just constantly read about, just in the last week, I've read a book on Pyro, for example. Uh, and so, um, yeah, I mean, it's a constant with me. And still, I, I'm fully aware, Shelley, that I know this much about Greek philosophy compared to this much there is to know, right? I mean, it's a vast subject, but um, I don't know. But I, in terms of the reincarnation thing, though, it, as in uh, the, my new book, uh, Proof of Life After Life, I talk about this. I, I just, um, again, I give up on the road. I don't know how to think my way out of it. Um, and for me, it's not anything to do with the scholarship that's been done on this subject. And uh, Ian Steen Stevenson, who is well known as the ex-Broming, and I knew Ian well, and I loved Ian dearly, and Anne, Anne. And I we just, we always, we always talked just very openly to each other about this. And I was always saying to, Ian, I said, Ian, you don't, you're really not good at critical reasoning. He wasn't. He was, you know, he, his parents were theosophists and he had a, a pre, but you know, that so-called research he did, and, and that's just so phony. I mean, not, he was a, he was rigorous in his way. And, but his idea of scholarship was that if you got the footnotes right and everything else was okay, right? But he wasn't good at critical reasoning. And my, my scenario of this research, he would go off to India for two weeks and come back with a bunch of these reports of people with reincarnation experiences. I used to wonder like, oh, yeah, you speak these languages? You know, no, no, who's the translator of this? The guy who, 
you know, imposter is the word that comes to my mind. But I mean, I think Ian was honest, but I think he, he wasn't good. So I, my, my take on reincarnation doesn't come from that side of things. You, you know, guess, you mentioned earlier, like not knowing, like people ask me all the time, you know, do you believe in reincarnation? I do believe in it in a faithful way, but I am like you. I always tell them I can't prove reincarnation because I'm like you. How can we sit around as a human being with this limited perception and tell yeah. people how like we don't, you know, I don't know the mind of God. You know, I don't know what's going to happen mm -hmm. when we get there. I think we're going to find out, you know, that's, but I, that's I do share I, that with you. I am, you know, I am open on it just because I know my own limitations and, and yet where I am with it is from my own kids. See, I have these two kids, both adopted at birth, and uh, we never exposed them to religion. They, they didn't. They, um, they found out about my book, Life After Life, by looking me up on the internet. We never talked about life after life death or anything <clears throat> and uh we just talked about what's on at the movies this weekend you know what's for dinner the homework and so uh, but both of these kids ignore you know just brought up like spontaneously their memories of where they were before they came to us but in such a way that i just can't deny that they what they said was right i um um, I, I'm, I'm, again, I'm flabbergasted, but again, I, I can't think my way out of it. David Hume, the great skeptic, said that, you know, he said, by the mere light of reason, it seems difficult to prove the immortality of the soul. Some new species of logic is requisite for that purpose, and some new faculties of the mind, which may enable us to comprehend that logic. And, uh, you know, his, his, assessment is right but his 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 further claim is as an ironist was therefore it can't be right but i agree with him on the the what he said but his conclusion that that makes the proof of life death, death impossible i disagree with because i think that yeah, there it is. As I said earlier, there are new logical forms where you can take this question on in a new way. It's very technical, see, but I mean, I'm, I'm going on that knowledge, which anyone could verify if they were interested in that. But, um, but nonetheless, and that David Hume said in that same essay, he said, he, he said, in my opinion, he said, um, the only view of an afterlife that I philosophical person could entertain would be reincarnation and he he leaves it at that he doesn't say anymore but um i have reflecting on that i bet that the reason that Hume felt that way was see he was a historian and therefore he understood the indispensable role of narrative and story in human life see so but in the and reincarnation is the obviously most story based right um, view of the afterlife because it's you know you talk about a story of a life and, and you know Shelley is terms of what we are you know what is our personal identity Plato said it was the immortal immaterial soul which you could have gotten burned alive in the middle ages for denying that then when things 
loosened up, you know, with Thomas Hobbes and all that whole notion of an immaterial soul is nonsense. Then Dave, uh, then John Locke helped to rescue it by saying, well, you know, it's like what we, our personal identity consists of our consciousness and our memories. Then Hume later on said, well, when I look at myself, I don't see anything permanent. It's always just the impression of the moment. And, but, you know, what, what is your personal identity? Well, I think it's your story. It's what else is that Raymond Moody is the individual who was born and had such and such a life story. And it, consciousness itself, Shelley, is, uh, is narrative based. Uh, cinematographers have what they call a Kulikov effect, I think it is, which is they have discovered that if you take any two random objects like a glasses case and a pen, and present them to people just randomly in sequence, then the mind automatically starts forming a story to connect those two objects. See, so that is built into us. Our consciousness is story-based, okay? And so therefore, I think that was what Hume saw was he was thinking, well, you know, I mean, human life is story. So, you know, maybe that that's the most plausible form of an afterlife to him. Wow, that is absolutely amazing. It is just, um, it's mind bending to think about all these things that we really can't fully prove, um, but yeah. we can certainly strive to do so. Yeah, and, and I think that uh, I myself have reached a point, you know, People used to say about the skeptics, I mean, the, you know, the Greek skeptics, that what an impractical form of life. You know, I mean, Pyrrho's friends allegedly used to have to chase him around to keep him from walking off a cliff. Or, I mean, he just, he, not, he was allegedly just so. But, but it's like what the skeptical position on that is actually, as David Hume said and others, that no, it's like I go as much by custom and convention as anybody else in my daily life, you know, but the fact that I have these abstract realizations doesn't keep me from wanting to go see the Barbie movie this weekend, which my daughter and my wife and I did, <laughs> and delightful. And, um, and so, um, you know, I mean, I am a skeptic in my temperament and at the same time I, I go to the movies I can't wait to see my daughter coming home next weekend and I'm in all the whole thing and and see where I, I think that these two strands on the one hand the afterlife and the and the other part the daily life that the skeptics talk about see to me these now are coming together because um, it looks to me like the whole convention if you just look at this world I know all sorts of people who, you know, we think that there's this absolute rigid wall between life and death, right? But I know people, and I know you know a lot of people who've been kind of both places. I've known a number of people over the years who had multiple cardiac arrests over a period of years with multiple near-death experiences. Um, primarily, most of them, some heart condition or something was the usual reason. 
Um, and I, I know lots of people who, you know, have had apparitional encounters with their loved ones after death. So what I'm getting at is that the afterlife is already kind of enfolded in this life in a way, Shelley. You know, and the older you get, it's, I, I noticed, you've probably noticed this with your associates too. It's like, you know, these people over decades and the older they get, the more likely it is they've had some sort of step over experience where they somehow ended up in another dimension of existence for a period and then came back. So this world itself, you see, is, is kind of impermeated permeated with the afterlife in a way yeah it's not that rigid division that exists in the abstract mind but it's more like a living experience of the afterlife yes and it seems along those lines you've talked more in more recent books including this one about like the difference between somebody who has like a near-death experience, which is something they are going to only experience themselves, they can tell yeah. you about it, but that now, kind of speaking to what you were mentioning, there's more shared death experience where there's mm -hmm. actual, we could call it proof or evidence that more people are experiencing mm -hmm. the same thing. So then we have to That's lend right. more credibility. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah, all of the elements that we associate with near-death experience, getting out of the body, you know, going through a passageway into a light, even the life review or seeing apparitions are also part of the experiences of bystanders at the death of someone else who were not ill or injured. And as I was saying before, it's their, their oxygen it, uh, the oxygen is flowing freely to their brains. They're not ill or injured, yet they're having the same experience. So you see that knocks the whole foundation out from under the standard way we like to think of these things. Is it, is it an oxygen deprivation or is it an afterlife? Well, you know, people are gonna hold on to that model no matter what, because it's familiar. But in reality, it's, there's nothing to it because it doesn't explain the obvious observation that lots of people who are at the bedside of somebody else have that same experience and they're not ill or injured. Right, it, it kind of speaks to some kind of a web of consciousness to which we're all somehow connected. That's right, that's right. Yeah, it does. It, it's the, again, that's something I've come to more and more of it's like I like that saying of Meister Eckhart, um, um, the eyes with which I see God are the same eyes with which God sees me. That's right. That that if you just look at your field, God is watching that too. As I know from all these people saying, you know, I came back and God knew everything I had ever done. Pretty good. Wow. God keeps up with the stories too. Yeah, it's all there. Absolutely. So I love this new book. I cannot recommend it enough. Okay. It is fantastic. Um, I think it is going to bring something to those who need some tools okay. to prove things that perhaps are not provable. I think it'll bring a lot to, to those people. 
That's what I'm hoping, because I know it's like it's a lot of people in midlife, for example, now who spent their life in the, you know, the practical everyday world. And then they reach this state, sometimes sadly because of the loss of a loved one or the a terminal diagnosis or for just the dawning of curiosity about these things that naturally happens in midlife that uh, I'm hoping that this book brings a lot of uh, information and insight and comfort, hopefully, to these folks that I know. I mean, I just hear from them all the time. So this book is dedicated to all those people who are, you know, really looking for the truth about this big question. Well, I absolutely love it. And I know Thanks. all of your fans and new readers are going to find this and they're going to love it, too. And I just want to thank you on behalf of all of us out here in humanity for all the work that you have done over the years to bring this information to the forefront because people are having these experiences and without you, they would not have had the context to be able to even understand what was happening. And so I thank you. I think you're amazing. Thank you, sweetheart, you for those, those sentiments. And, you know, it's, and, and to me, it's just, I just passed that along to Plato. <laughs> So. Well, Plato would be proud. Let's just put it yeah. that way. You've, you've really brought so much to everyone. And, and this is a great book. Friends, you've got to pick up a copy of the book. The, the link will be below along with um, Raymond's website and contact details. You've outdone yourself this time, my friend. This is amazing. So. Cannot recommend it enough. So pick up Raymond's book today. Thank kids. you. And I will see you next time on the next episode of Healing Arts. Great. Thank you so much. And thanks to all the people listening in too. Absolutely. Hey friends, would you like to heal your ancestors to heal your life? Well, you can do just that with my book by the same name that will teach you my genealogical regression process so that you can send love and light to your ancestors. And by learning a few simple techniques, you will begin to feel the benefits of that healing resonating through yourself and your entire family, past, present, and future. Check out my book, Heal Your Ancestors to Heal Your Life, The Transformative Power of Genealogical Regression, today. Just go to pastlifelady.com, click on the book link, and check it out. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Healing Arts with Dr. Shelley Care. Visit me online at pastlifelady.com or on YouTube at Past Life Lady or connect with me on Facebook at Past Life Lady.